0: Nobody in this movie ever yells, Hold the line! (laughs) Which I am super tired of as a trope. I don't know if it comes from Gladiator, I don't know if it's a sword and sandal thing. Every goddamn movie about the past has to have somebody yelling, Hold the line.
1: Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick.
2: And I'm Elijah Fleming.
1: And today we're going to be talking about Troy, Fall of a City. The first time actually a not movie, we're branching out into television. Uh, the 2018 BBC One slash Netflix original series directed by Owen Harris and Mark Brozel, uh, with a couple of different credited screenwriters and a huge cast of characters. I'm not going to list out right now. But we're going to be getting into... The, we're trying something a little different. We're for the next couple episodes where as we go into this mini series, we're going to be doing it in parts. So part one, we're going to be talking about primarily the first three episodes. And then we're going to come back in part two with sort of the middle chunk and the third part dealing with the finale. But there's also an extra special development in this episode because we're going to be joined by a series of wonderful and novel guests in... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In cooperation, in conjunction, that's the word I'm looking for, in conjunction (laughs) with an ongoing class at UT Austin. Uh, So joining us today is the professor of that class, uh, Dr. Adam Rabinowitz, professor of classics at UT Austin and an archaeologist. Also, should I say Eli's advisor? (laughs) It's true.
2: Make it, make it extra pressure, yeah. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Well, we had my advisor on, too, uh, yeah. for a minute, so it's only fair. Only fair. Uh, but yeah. your,
0: your advisor did not have a chance to nag about the dissertation in the course of the show, however.
1: Yeah, that's because I was on the other side of the process. <laughs> I was post-dissertation, so all, the, all of the many, many mistakes and errors and typos and things like that and grave grievances, it's all, it was too late at the time. <laughs> but yeah, thank you, Adam, for, for joining us. We're really excited to have you because also we're going to have after this your own students cuz right now you're teaching you're teaching basically uh, uh, an undergraduate series or an undergraduate seminar
0: yeah so let me talk a little bit about the course and this is this is thank you guys for having us this is really exciting for me as well and a really neat opportunity for students who i think have been kind of starved for college type interactions over the course of the last year to do something creative and interesting and outside of the the normal scope of the class. So this is a class that's taught as part of the signature course series of the School of Undergraduate Studies at UT Austin. And signature courses are meant to be courses that introduce first year students to how to be college students, help them with the transition from high school to college, introduce them to the, the vast and diverse wealth of uh, knowledge present at UT and what people do and they what they study. And this particular course is about the story of the Trojan War, partly about the the Iliad and it, its original form, but mainly about how we tell stories and how we retell stories and how stories are changed and adapted. So I've been teaching this course since two thousand and eight. It's my favorite course to teach. Um, I it's probably the course for which the I've remained in touch with the largest number of students over the years. And that's it's 13 years now. So I mean some of these people are full-grown adults with actual jobs, which is weird because for me they're always frozen at 18, right? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I feel the same way about my nephews and nieces. Like you guys are you guys still aren't eight? <laughs> Wait till you have kids and they get driver's
0: licenses and you're like you are a baby who shouldn't drive a car because of babiness.
1: I feel that about most Texan drivers, truthfully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so over the course of the semester, we look at the Iliad, but then we look at retellings of the story of the Trojan War, and we think a lot about what those retellings say about the audiences for which they were made, about the creative process, about what makes a story sticky, why we keep telling it, retelling it. Sometimes maybe we shouldn't um, because we don't do so very well, but... That's the the sort of general nature of the course. And by the time you talk to the students, they will have made their way all the way up to 2018 via 2004 and the Brad Pitt movie. So they will have started in the 8th century BC. And they also learned about Bronze Age archaeology. So they've got some background in Schliemann and the rediscovery of the site of Troy, which the University of Texas almost purchased in 1895, but then did not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Along with yeah. Calvert's entire oh collection of uh, of antiquities, um, <laughs> so we read some of the letters where uh, the university is deciding not to buy Troy or uh, Calvert's vast collection of Trojan materials. Wow, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and they ought to be able to talk as well about that sort of process of transformation that happens with stories as they as they move through time.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I'm like, because I'm super, when we, I want to talk to you about sort of your experiences sort of with this class, particularly in after this, this show, or after the show came out. But I also like the, I'm curious to hear from the students themselves, if like they're, because like, we probably all encountered, like the three of us I probably, I think, encountered this series. Well, we were all, Eli and I were at least in graduate school by the time this came out. for sure. We're sort of in some capacity, professionally thinking about Troy. Uh, in some, in some shape, but like how they, and also we had already experienced the sort of 2004 movie, um, which I think is like a very, is a important reference point for this show. But I'm really curious to, when we get the students sort of in the booth, um, to hear sort of their thoughts about that.
0: Can I, can I, can I say something that blows my mind? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm teaching this course again in the fall. And by the time we get to the fall, the students that I will have will have been born the year, the 2004 movie came out.
1: Yeah, it's like a super old, yeah, it's like, it's like an old, weird movie. Yeah, that is, I, I hate That's oh uh, an unsettling bit of information.
2: Uh, no, I remember, like, two years ago, I taught the intro to Greek Civ, and I, I asked my students, it was like, you know, a lecture course of a uh, hundred and some of them. I was like, who's seen the movie Troy? So I think I made a joke, and like, nobody laughed. <laughs> about brad pitt or something and like nobody had seen this movie i was yeah. like what are you all doing here that's Why? like
1: the, like the worst you know i feel like that we're, we're in our i'm I'm experiencing that now where like my pop culture references are falling are starting to fall flat because i realize they haven't they're not up to date with like justin timberlake's uh performances on snl or like him when he guests in the early 2000s or like you know yeah early 2000s snl sketches like don't have quite the same sort of like uh, cachet that they used to uh, but yeah, but just sort of independent of the class, like when when this uh, if you if you saw this when it came out, Adam, I wanted to just ask like our, our opening question always is like, do you dig this show or what were, what was your experience and thoughts either when you first saw it or or having revisited it in rec- in the recent weeks?
0: so I have to admit that um, I sometimes use the the metaphor of of dissection to talk about what happens when you look too closely at a work mm-hmm. you start to you start to lose the the forest for the trees right you lose that joy that you had in the big picture because you've pulled all the pieces apart and i have to admit that when a new trojan war story related thing comes out my first thought is hey i wonder if i can use it for my class and then i am pleased when i discover that yes they have done things that will make it useful to discuss in the context of a class on how you tell the story so that I think was my first reaction. I was excited before I even knew about it to be able to talk about it. And that was partly because before it even was released, there was a controversy about the casting of Achilles Mm -hmm. with a black actor. And so that was, that was exciting. I watched it. Um, I did not, I have to admit, I did not dig it excessively the first time I watched it all the way through. It was very long There were parts Mm -hmm. that I thought were irrelevant. Um, I was annoyed by some of the heavy handedness. Watching it again in the context of this course while thinking about my students' experience and then watching together, we did some watch parties and watching it again, again, to talk about it on the podcast, I have decided that there are some more interesting things happening. I don't know that they are very well executed. But I can see more effort than I initially ascribed to the series, which I started started out thinking was somewhat lazy, yeah. now i now I feel that it is less lazy and more a problem with uh, with
1: execution than concept, yeah,
0: so that's a long way to say kinda.
1: yeah, well, that's what like most of our reactions kind of boil down to like maybe like yeah. I, like there's things I like things I didn't like. It, it's it's pretty rare. Well, sometimes we occasionally we get a movie that we like unanimously dig. And lately we're, we've been in the business of just like reinventing or like trying to rewrite or re-edit these things, which I have thought that's what I was sort of doing on this, this review. Uh, but what about you, Eli?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think kind of is is a good way to to describe it, because I, I think upon my rewatch of the first three, I really hated the first episode. I was like, this is kind of boring, and I really liked the second episode and then the third was like, nah. so I, I don't know. Yeah. It kind of goes up and down, but I will say that I recently watched for the very first time. This is kind of a tangent, uh, silence of the lambs. Mm-hmm. And I have never felt so much tension in a movie. And I've sort of now like <laughs> think about everything as sort of, uh, measuring up to like that level of tension, Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's no tension in this show and it's it all kind of goes at the same pace. Like I never I never feel like kind of concerned or worried and maybe that's sort of part of the the execution um that Adam's talking about possibly. Yeah, so Yeah, kind
1: of. <laughs> yeah, I think like to that point that kind of goes hand in hand with which what I was thinking was that I saw this show when it first came out and i remember the initial the controversy that that adam was describing which i don't know if we have a whole lot to say from other than it was just kind of a dumb racist knee-jerk reaction from probably smaller portions of the internet than it even seems like i'm not actually sure like who in reality is upset well no i mean
0: i think there was actually a not insubstantial portion of the british discourse which Mm -hmm. had already been primed by being angry about people saying that there were black Romans in Britain. Yeah. The, oh, the, the Mary
1: yeah. Beard controversy. Uh,
0: exactly. And so mm-hmm. I think that they, you know, you're right. It was a controversy about um, being mad that this imaginary character from the past <laughs> who I have decided was white is portrayed by an actor who's not white. And that's not yeah. fair because that, you know, mm-hmm. this imaginary character should be who I think, who I imagined this imaginary character to be. But yeah. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a, a tiny fraction. I think there was, I mean, I mean, sure the the media may have played it up but my guess is that there were
1: you know not an insubstantial yeah. number of people who were miffed about this mm-hmm. yeah and, and and to 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 for two points of context so yeah the the the, the casting of of david Gyasi as achilles and to a lesser extent hakeem kai kazim as zeus although weirdly those two like were fronted and cited most often but there's a slew of other non-white actors in this mm-hmm. um I'm looking at my cast Paneus list. Here, but it's for a huge, one, yeah, Nestor, yeah, yep, uh, some sort of more fictional characters like Pandarus, yeah, N- Nestor, exactly. Um, there was a whole slew, but but the for a little context. So I, I, when did the the Mary? There was a, a basically a YouTube video for, by the, the History Channel or was it BBC? I don't remember. Yeah, but one of the two, and it was just like daily life in British and Roman Britain. And, and they had one of the one of the principal sort of characters in this like it was like an animation I think was yep. was portrayed as black and people were like this is historically inaccurate and then a very famous classicist Mary beard came in and said actually no it's perfectly unreasonable and this was completely a thing you know there were people traveling all across the sort of Roman world so it's completely feasible that there would be uh, a not a, basically a black person in Britain and then it's this whole controversy that sort of sp- spun out and got Um, It just became like another sort of point in like the ongoing sort of cultural clash. But anyway, so back to the original love of kind of my sort of thoughts on this show, independent of that that controversy and kind of to what Eli was saying is that the show, I think, suffers a little bit from being sort of very much like a product of its own time, like in that TV landscape where it feels like, you know, in the sort of Game of Thrones is already sort of I think it was the biggest show ever. Um, And it's this prior to the sort of season eight fallout and a show like Vikings was also very, very popular. Like this feels like one of the many imitators of those kinds of shows, like the Marco Polo show also on Netflix, which I think suffers, I think from a lot of the same problems or the last kingdom, which kind of feels like a watered down Vikings, which in and of itself is kind of a watered down game of Thrones. Although I think Vikings found its own sort of voice. Um, But these kind of like, you know sort of uh like hbo-esque historical dramas with a large cast of characters and it feels very sort of um i think like my my big critique of the show is that it's actively fine it's not like bad bad i don't hate it but i also don't love it and then in a way like being fine is almost worse for the show because it just kind of becomes forgettable just becomes like a drop in the pond among a larger sort of constellation of of shows in this tv landscape but yeah, you know, you, we, you, you mentioned your sort of distaste of the first episode, and we guess we could just, we could just start there and sort of work through, because this show begins, well, I guess one of the main, the conceits of this show that I, I would sort of pick at is that this show, I think, well, I don't think, it centers sort of Paris and, to a lesser extent, Helen as its sort of main protagonists, which is, I think, a choice, and I think Adam was saying is, like, open to sort of an interesting and novel direction but doesn't necessarily go there so can i can i jump in here yeah if this please. is this is
0: what i realized on sort of watching it again and i had the same reaction that it was too diffuse there are too many people sometimes you don't know why they're even there you don't really care about them because you never get them developed pandarus sort of looms around and then he gets <laughs> mad and he almost discovers a spy but then the spy kills it sorry i'm spoiling but
1: now nah, there's gonna be spoilers for the show listen
0: but you don't you don't really <laughs> care that much um and it's hard to care about most of the characters because when they're not being annoying, they are being extremely laconic. This is a very laconic uh, version of (laughs) the the Iliad. You know what you've got in the Iliad, people are constantly yelling extensive, you know, several paragraph long um, posts and threats at each other. And here, you know, you're lucky if you can squeeze two words out of Achilles, but here's the thing. I think that this series is neither about war nor about romantic love, but about family. And if you look at it through the lens of family, some of the choices and some of the diffuseness make a bit more sense. And where it starts makes more sense, right? Mm Because we're not unfamiliar with stories of the Trojan War, starting with Paris and Helen, because we have an audience that doesn't have the backstory, and we don't want to do it all by flashbacks or by indirect discourse in the Mm -hmm. body of the story. So, you know, Troy, the movie starts with Paris and Helen, and Lots of the sort of 1950s Helen of Troy movies and the 1980s Helen of Troy movie, I think, start with that sort of Paris-Helen frame, but this one starts with Paris's birth. Mm-hmm. So even more than Helen, it's framing Paris Paris's arc, but his arc as part of this family at Troy, and that, I think, is being set from the beginning in contrast with the... Sort of continual violations of family that are attributed to the Greek side by mm-hmm. the show. Yeah, and, I mean, also by myth, but I think they're highlighted in a way that is is
1: deliberate. Yeah, that that makes sense because as yeah. as I was looking through, because it seems like one of the main conflicts that they're setting up is this, and I'm only I, I've only rewatched episode three in my memory from you know it was only two years ago, but my memory of my first viewing is a little because probably because I binged it all in like a weekend. And so I, I, I didn't retain a lot, but that they're setting up this sort of conflict of like why Paris was sent into exile or maybe he was supposed to be killed as a baby. And then the, the Priam and Hecuba, the royal family wanting to reincorporate him into the family and the tensions that brings were like, I think it's in episode three, there's a minute where Hector sort of contemplates murdering Paris because there's a prophecy that he's gonna ruin the city. Uh, and then versus, yeah, like you said, on the Greek side, particularly in episode two, where you have the sort of Iphigenia Sequence and and you know Agamemnon's willingness to kind of to sacrifice his own family to get what he wants. I think that is like sort of beginning to make sense. But then there's the the matter of, of execution. Yeah,
2: I, I can see that also with like o- Odysseus when they go find him and they sort of like rip apart his family because they're taking mm-hmm. him away and they kind of use his son as a ploy to get him to step out of the madness. So yeah, I I kind of like seeing that framework because. Yeah, I don't know. I just can't get over how much I hate the main character. It's like if if Paris is our main <laughs> character, I really hate him. <laughs> he does all of these terrible, awful things, and I feel like there isn't. Well, I mean, we're only three episodes in, I guess, in this conversation, but it there mm-hmm. like doesn't seem to be a redemption arc. Um. Yeah, he's a
1: he's a tricky character. I think to kind of try to redeem because of just like there, the at parts. I think this show is kind of almost constrained by you know, there's some elements of the plot that it kind of has to, or not has to, but is, is sort of confined by, and Paris just does kind of crappy things. Um, He's on paper. I mean, the Iliad doesn't think very highly of him. He's constantly getting sort of chewed out by his family or, or or his enemies or whoever. But then the notion of, of Paris, I had sort of two thoughts at the end of my, at the end of the first episode that kind of one sort of more facetious and, and one sort of, more uh more sort of critical but the first being i think the show in the the, i think the show does have a casting sort of problem but it's not the controversy everyone's talking about i think this show suffers from an overabundance of bearded brunette white men that to a certain point speaking to adam sort of diffuses become kind of inscrutable from one another (laughs) like i many of them look so similar that i i have trouble sort of telling them apart Mm -hmm.
0: except for odysseus who belongs in a lars von trier
1: movie Yes. Yeah. You have wanders saying,
0: around beaches looking melancholy yes. all the time. Was, he,
1: he, yeah, he's the one exception. And yeah. to a lesser ten Agamemnon because he's bald, so he's a little easier to spot. But Odysseus just yeah. has this very unique um a Joseph Maul um as this very sort of unique sort of face. He's he is one of the I think the, the casting choices that I really like. Um too tall. Too tall though. He's taller than uh, uh, everybody. It's not that's oh, Interesting. Uh but but sort of my more if I were to sort of thinking about the show and that like all of the characters become sort of very, they're, they're sort of too thin and you know, they're sort of too like it, one of the credits to Game of Thrones, which does this over I think a much longer period of time, which makes it easier that it sort of is able to balance so many compelling characters that people get really invested in and have such a large ensemble cast is I think the show should have done a little bit more of like zooming switching perspectives and switching foci and having episodes that are primarily dominated by, and they kind of do this a little bit, but I think not enough primarily dominated by maybe a single character and we can experience their backstory and things through their eyes. And I think the first episode shouldn't have been, this is my own hot take, but I think the first episode shouldn't have been about Paris. It should have been about Helen and it should have been because like they're setting up what I think is a very interesting sort of uh, conflict of, of Helen who feels trapped and confined by royalty in the whole life where she's married off at a very young age and is sort of in this trapped, loveless marriage and is confined by sort of duty and obligation. And then in comes Paris, this sort of smooth talking pretty boy shepherd who sort of offers her the thing that she wants, like IE a way out and maybe to live free because he has had this experience growing up as sort of a shepherd and outside of those kinds of constraints. Which would make more sense for her to to go – why she would go off with him and why she would be so enticed and then leaves room for her maybe to be like – oh, maybe have room for like regret or second thought because that way if Paris isn't our sort of protagonist in the way I think the first episode makes him out to be, I think there's more room to, to like to, – to to be less enthused by Paris and we can sort of – empathize more with Helen and we don't feel like we need to empathize more with Paris, which I, I just sort of feel resentful about. Like, I don't want (laughs) to empathize with Paris. He just does, there's a whole sequence where Paris does a series of things that just confound me where like he gets the judge, he has the judgment of the app or the judgment of Paris where he awards the apple, which is already kind of, maybe this is a thing that happens in the myth, but it's kind of a questionable decision on his part. Uh, And then he immediately goes and like hijacks a horse and rides it into Troy and challenges Hector to a wrestling match. And then Hector, who just, like, was kind of this, like, roided of, like, Hector just goes apeshit on him, basically. And just, like, beats the crap out of him that leads to this recognition scene. And that whole sequences of events, I'm like, why did, like, none of that made any sense to me. Also, that's <laughs> all felt very sort of contrived. But which is a long roundabout way of saying, I think the first episode really should have been about Helen with a little bit of Paris. Rather than, I, I think I would have flipped the the way the show sort of the way it does it where it dwells in Paris for the first like 20 or so minutes. And then we meet Helen in the sort of back half. I would have flipped those two things, but that are just, those, that's just my two cents.
2: I like that. I think that could have been really interesting. I think some of the criticisms for this show were that it doesn't like change that much of the storyline. Mm-hmm. It sort of has uh, all of the plots sort of laid out relatively the same. And I think some people were like, you had a chance to sort of maybe do something a little bit more detail-oriented or like, you know, spread out if you're doing, you know, a miniseries. And yeah, nobody seems to start with Helen, mm-hmm. maybe. So I think that could have been kind of cool.
1: There's also, there's part of it, is, there's a long sort of, and we talked a little bit about this in our Troy episode, there's a long classical tradition of sort of reanalyzing and relitigating all of Helen and her character and all of her decisions. Um, You know, there's a tradition on one side of sort of excoriating her for causing the war and and doing what she does. And there's another trying to sort of, and this is told out through like various like poems and plays and and various things, trying to sort of, uh, not necessarily justify, but sort of explain and like defend that kind of choice. And, And I mean, just a character study, I think she's to me a more interesting character, at least on the surface level than Paris is.
0: But I think, I think, if you've already gone down this road, and I think even more than just sort of family in general, this is about parents and children,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that you you don't have a parent and child thing with Helen. I mean, among other things, because she comes out of an egg and she's the daughter yeah. of Zeus, right? But <laughs> also because you just that doesn't exist as part of the story, whereas you have this very specific parent child issue from the mm-hmm. beginning with Paris, mm-hmm. which is if somebody told you that your child was gonna grow up and, you know, be Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. would you kill your child? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Would you not kill your child and accept that? Would you try to get around it by like sort of pretending to kind of kill the child maybe and (laughs) hoping it didn't work out that way? So I think that that, again, looking at it from that perspective, it seemed like that was really the only way to go. Mm -hmm. And that Helen in some ways is an underdeveloped character and does a bunch of weird things because she doesn't have that familial place. Mm -hmm. She's a dislocated family member. Right, her mm-hmm. father, her parents aren't around. There's there are these weird scenes where you know her daughter's like, my mom is always coming on to everybody, mm-hmm. um, and where you know Helen is asked to describe her daughter, and she's like, I don't know, like <laughs> she's like her dad. We never really got along, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that isolates her in a story that is largely about family, but it's meant, I think, to serve as that counterpoint.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's there's a whole, she has a whole conversation with Andromache who, there's a subplot where Andromache is trying to conceive, but that in that process, she kind of discovers this whole controversy or the the mm-hmm. prophecy about Paris. Um, but they have this sort of conversation about sort of like motherhood. And Helen's is kind of like, I've never, like, that's never really been for me. And Andromache is like, taken aback by this. But then, yeah, I guess, like, then it comes to the, where it's like, the show is almost bound by, it becomes constrained by you know, if if family is the sort of central thematic crux, it, it sort of, it, it strays sort of so close to kind of a lot of the original story that, like, it, it doesn't, it can't really redeem Paris or make him as compelling of a character. Partially, I think, because, like, there's just many scenes where, like, like a, he really has, like, a stick up his butt, like, where <laughs> he throws a tantrum at dinner in front of Hermione. Um, and again, I think, like, some de- decisions that are made are just sort of confounding, like, when Priam just decides to send paris off alone on this very important mission um who so far has basically paris has, has been nothing but like a party boy
2: but. yeah yeah I, I think my favorite line is like so how would you two get together <laughs> he's like yeah. asking menelaus and helen like
1: and i'm like I'm gonna, i think i said out loud I'm like i'm gonna go with arranged marriage <laughs> um, <laughs> if i had to guess that's kind of how all these people met um.
0: can i can i give you a, another interesting helen thing Yes, please. Mm-hmm. And stop me if I'm just going off on random tangents. But no, I, this is the
1: this it, is the podcast for random tangents. It
0: is <laughs> it, the whole thing was one of those, again on on second or third viewing, one of those attempts where you're like, I wish that they had actually made this work because there are some interesting things here, and I doubt that anybody actually caught any of them. So you <laughs> didn't you didn't sell the story. But Helen is also set up as a proxy for a kind of Maria Gimbutas style conflict between an old uh, matriarchy and a new Indo-European mean, stabby patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So the thing about Helen, and I again, this is something that I didn't really think about until the second time around. Helen is standing in for the Minoans, mm-hmm. right? And the the palace that she's in, which, mm-hmm. you know, Menelaus is constantly saying it was a barbaric wilderness. And then I civilized it. And, yeah. but it, it's clear that it was more Eastern in some ways than Western, you know, and there's this scene where Paris comes to the palace and he dusts off a wall. Right. And there's this, uh, Theban wall painting, um, mm-hmm. like a, a, pretty direct replica of one of the, one of the wall paintings, in fact, on the mainland, but whatever, mm-hmm. um, with my, with Minoan echoes of a, you know, a woman, one of these sort of Minoan, uh, figures with with bare breasts and a flounced skirt. And he's sort of like this has somehow been covered over by, by time. It's, it's like that like chalk or
1: white paint over it or something. Yeah, like yeah.
0: That. And so he brushes it off. And like you you re- you read it as oh this is referring to the presence of Helen. But it's also this palimpsest, right? Something has been erased. Mm-hmm. And then there's this really weird scene which has my favorite animal cameo uh, oh, the I ostrich. Feel, Sorry. I feel, did it, you gave it Sorry. away. But it wasn't. It was an emu, I'm pretty sure, because ostriches are bigger and harder to manage, and they will they will kick you something fierce. Um, <laughs> but this, all Troy uh, remakes, all stories that uh, remake the Trojan War in film should have some kind of weird animal cameo, yes. um, like a, like an emu, for example. But anyway, mm-hmm. so Paris sneaks out, he can't sleep. And so he sneaks out to go see what Helen is up to. And she's in this sort of space full of silks and Paris is sort of peeping through the side and this emu sort of wanders up behind him and does an emu <laughs> thing, <and> wanders <laughs> off again. And Helen is sitting around with a bunch of half-dressed women in d- sort of confusingly wet clothing, doing seductive Eastern style dances. And she's smoking something from a little pipe. And I realized the second time I watched it, that it is in fact, uh, and Eli will maybe remember this from our ancient food class, but there are these items that are sort of long, hollow bones or ivory sort of wands that people have argued are opium smoking devices on Cyprus and in Crete. And there's this longstanding discussion about whether people are using opium in religious rituals in Minoan and and sub-Minoan culture, right? The goddesses with the poppies on their crowns with the slits in the poppies that suggest that maybe Mm -hmm. this is uh, poppy juice that is being allowed to, poppy sap that's being collected to to create an opioid drug. And I think that that is not coincidental. I think that the call out is to this idea of a matriarchal, ecstatic, wild, Dionysian, Minoan society in contrast to the mean, I planted everything in rows, you know, and I have my arranged (laughs) marriage and do what I say and everything is logical. Like, that's what she accuses Hermione of. She's like, she's all rational like her dad. Um, (laughs) And that's the the sort of contrast that's being drawn. And it then emphasizes the contrast that's drawn between the Achaeans and the Trojans when Helen goes to Troy. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. that's her whole I am a woman speech. That's the whole, you know, in Troy, the women also lead and they make co-decisions with the kings and mm-hmm. everybody is sort of more equal. Which, I mean, you can see that to a certain extent in the Iliad, although you obviously don't have a parallel situation in a functioning city and a military camp. Right. Yeah. but But I think that this is something that is definitely being... Underlined with the figure of Helen, and so once you are a symbol of this other thing, it's again harder to make you into a character. Yeah, right, because yeah. your travails are symbolic of the patriarchy mm-hmm. coming and quashing the the pre existing matriarchy with its more egalitarian relationships and cool opium parties.
1: Yeah, oh, that makes sense because I did not know what to make. I really like that interpretation because I did not know what to make of the the wall painting scene. Because my first reaction was like. That was just them being like, "Look, we did our research." <laughs> but it actually makes sense sort of thematically in the way you just described it. So I think I should like I should give the show writers a little more credit. But yeah, yeah, th- there is a very pointed contrast. And again, like you said, because like in the Iliad, all the pretty much all of the the women we hear from in the Iliad are on the Trojan side. and but that also makes sense because the other the Greeks are in a sort of military encampment. Um, but there is this the show definitely sets up a very sort of more egalitarian, system in Troy versus a sort of very strictly patriarchal version on the side of the Greeks
2: and that makes me think I I feel like I wish I would have counted like how many times I feel like Helen says over and over again like I decided or like I chose she's like she uses a lot of very active words when she's talking about her actions and trying to maybe like align herself like with that uh that symbolicness which I think is really cool I like thinking about that that way
0: I but wish also I that have e-
2: counted how many times she said that.
0: I am perplexed by the emu. <laughs> the, the Trojan llama fine, right? You're doing you're filming in, in Mexico. There are llamas around. You say, gather up some animals, run into the city. People have the llama. They're like, okay, I'm taking the llama. But it it was you weren't meant to see it, right? It shows up and only if you're looking for it do you notice it. Whereas this emu is like, hello. <laughs> no, it's I the, am an emu. I the, will yeah. stand here for my shot. <laughs> now I will recede back into the shadows I mean there's this whole sort of caged bird extremely heavy handed metaphor that's going on with yep. that one but why the emu why would they you know who was sitting there and saying what this scene really needs is an emu
1: is <laughs> a large flightless bird
0: right because nobody's gonna get it Unless we stick an emu in there and then they'll be like, oh, they're talking about like matriarchy and freedom and female (laughs)
1: choice and because of the emu. It is all very heavy handed and it goes even hand in hand with like the country because like there's all sorts of birds around Helen and then when she escapes in the crate at the end of the first episode, a bunch of birds fly out over Hermione right behind her, like fly out of the palace, which is like, you know, metaphor. Um, (laughs) Exactly.
0: And, And emu.
1: Yeah, (laughs) but but like it's also reflected in her sort of wardrobe where she, you know, when she's in the palace, she's in like feather, she's in this like feather outfit. Mm -hmm. And then and I was making notes when she's um, when she arrives, I think in the second episode, she arrives and she's wearing like a purely seashell outfit, basically, or it's like it's it's a, a necklace comprised of no less than one trillion seashells. And then later she's wearing this other weird outfit that's like ropes.
2: Yeah, it's a little rope.
1: It it looks like string. It was like a, yeah, it was a very, it was like one of those, it looks like one of those dogs that has the dreadlocks. Yeah. That's what I was reminded of.
2: Well, that was for the scene where she's coming into the um, negotiation, right? So Mm -hmm. that's like more of her cagedness in in response to that possibility of which direction those negotiations go. Um, Because then when she gives out grain... Um, she's dressed in just like a normal dress. She's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Ah, oh, so interesting. Go back and look at all of her dresses.
0: <laughs> also the chest, Mino and Larnax. Oh,
1: right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the it's the Iatriata sarcophagus in a, in a sort of a somewhat bastardized form if you look at it closely. Huh.
1: It's awesome. <laughs> so I mentioned sort of, uh, we, we've been talking about Helen and, and Paris a little bit, um, but I was going to switch it even to episode two and talk about what I think sort of, was kind of and I think should have been more so the, the, the main character of episode two, which is Odysseus. Because we I think we begin with him, we begin with the famous story of you know him trying to get out of the war by by ploughing his fields with salt or whatever. Um and then whoever it is. In the show I think is Diomedes, who's just another one of these sort of nameless, faceless bearded dudes. Yeah,
0: in in the myth it's Palamedes. And this is why Odysseus hates Palamedes in the late antique and medieval tradition where Odysseus like arranges to have Palamedes murdered, which is why Dante is partially why Dante is mad at Odysseus and meets him in the (laughs) Inferno. (laughs) Palamedes is like the wise counselor who like could have been better than Agamemnon, but Odysseus and Diomedes gang up to have him killed because he's always like Mm -hmm. being all like, oh, I know better than you. They took the Medes, and then they were just like, "There's a Medes guy in there. Let's make it Diomedes." Palamedes is got to be confusing. People remember Diomedes, yeah.
1: <laughs> and he—I mean—I think he's kind of alone. Of the more interesting, because I think to the family thing, he is another sort of great sort of. If we were going to have an episode that was really just sort of about him, the the family dilemma, because then so we have the you know him leaving Penelope, um, and 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 for some reason he has two children. There's like two Telemachuses.
0: Yes, and one of them is like a nine-year-old.
1: Yeah, that was that, that. was one of those like I don't know. I don't know. It was one of the things like the show seems so thought, like like they careful and thoughtful, and like that was the thing that bugged me unreasonably because <laughs> there's the whole thing in the Odyssey where I think it's Telemachus, Odysseus' son, is like I am an only child of an only child of an only child. That's mm-hmm. like part of the big thematic import of the Odyssey, is you know. Odysseus being away from his only son for so long and Telemachus growing up sort of alone, basically, with with, or with the exception of, of his mother, Penelope. So I was like, why did they even have – like, all you needed was to have one toddler and then you could have the toddler be the – Adam shaking his hand.
0: I Well, I, I, I did shake my finger because you need a baby to lie in front of the, mm-hmm. the plow. Yeah. Otherwise, that doesn't work because a toddler would get out of the way, right? Any, yep. Anything older than a toddler. So you need a baby there, but you can't tell a baby – you're the man of the house now. Yep. Right. You can't <laughs> have this mean? this stereotyped dad son thing where mm-hmm. you're like, I am asking you to take on my mantle, but I'll come back. Don't forget, like, because <laughs> a baby, like, what is it going to do? <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, then, and then, but my my read is like, you just need a different speech um, or something like that. <laughs> just change that. Change that speech because I think yeah, Telemachus should be like an infant or something. Um, if I don't quite remember the, the
0: he is. no, I mean the whole plow thing is a real part of the yeah. later tradition. And he's a baby, yes.
1: which, which also, I mean, made me, I, I get why they didn't put this in, but my favorite of, there's all these stories of like how different heroes sort of have to get corralled into going to Troy. But my favorite is the one where they have, they get Achilles who's hiding out in basically like a, a convent, essentially like he's hanging out with like a, on this Island of all women. I, I think at a temple or something, Scyros, I think it is.
0: He's in a palace. He's, he's yeah. dressed as one of the daughters of Lycomedes, the King of Skyros.
1: Yes. Uh, and, and they go, and there's a couple different versions where I think it's Odysseus and they, they try to get Achilles out either by pretending to attack the, the town and Achilles comes out to fight or the other one where they, I think they just throw a bunch of weapons on the ground and Achilles like just loves weapons so much. He like reveals himself.
0: They bring, they bring presents for the daughters, right? And among the presents happens to be a shield and a spear,
2: he and then Odysseus
0: has one of the guys stand outside and blow the, you know, alarm signal that mm-hmm. we're being attacked, and Achilles leaps and grabs the spear and shield and yeah. that was it. I think
1: there's a great I want to say, it's like some renaissance painting but there's a great painting of Achilles and he's like kind of like eyes bugging out as he's like diving for the pile of weapons but <laughs> I get why they didn't put that scene in here but yeah, we have this, episode two is, is kind of the Odysseus episode, sort of, but then it becomes like basically a version of Iphigenia to Aulis, like, or like that story, which there's a Euripides play, but the, the broader story where Agamemnon has to sacrifice his daughter in order to get the winds to change so he can go to Troy. And that's when we're introduced to most of the sort of Greek ensemble, I think, outside of, we've met Menelaus already.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this was my favorite episode, I think, of the first three. Um, maybe just because like of all of the action that was kind of packed into here, I sort of felt like a lot of stuff happens like we got to do a lot of things um and also I think the sacrifice of Iphigenia was like really interesting to actually put on screen it was a I don't know fun creative choice maybe I don't want to say fun because you kill a small child but um Mm -hmm. I yeah I feel like that hasn't really been depicted before and that was a unless it has Adam
0: Oh no, no no, I'm sorry, I keep making hand gestures. Just ignore me and finish talking. And no. then I, will say the <laughs> I was gonna say.
2: I just, I, I've never I have never seen that depicted before um, and I think it was an interest it was a really good choice to put that in there to have that there.
0: So I don't know if the if this is credited because I never watched the sort of end of show credits very much and I haven't looked up interviews with the people who produced it or the writers or anybody, but I am convinced. That the first few episodes, especially the first and second episodes, are basically cribbed from Eric Schanauer's Age of Bronze graphic novels of the Trojan War story, Hmm. um, which have all of those pieces more or less in exactly that order with more or less exactly those dynamics. And yeah, I mean, he's taking them from various other later sources, from Apollonius and from Dictus and Darius and from whoever. But the way that it is staged and the way that the characters interact... Very, very much the same. That would
1: make sense to me.
0: I, so it, it, it's one of the things where I'm like, you know, I, okay, I get it, but you could at least like credit it for inspiring yeah. the way you're telling the story. Well, it's
1: it's fu- it's I, I, I thought of two things in, in which makes which I think sort of c- like corroborate that theory because so. One that seems like a normal thing to do is rather than hunt down every various source, you just find someone that's already done it for and you and storyboarded it, right? It's a graphic yeah, novel, so exactly, <laughs> yeah. And the the 2014 Hercules with Dwayne the Rock Johnson is also based on a graphic novel that largely goes unmentioned. It's like Hercules and the Thracian Wars or something like that, but it's definitely it's it's very it's it's very closely aligned. And then in interviews, I w- I tracked down a few sort of interviews and sort of show notes and things, and they mentioned like. Because, you know, the, the Iliad part hasn't really happened yet. We're all we're outside of the Iliad at this point. Um, and they mention, like, different sources. Like, they kind of, like, saying, you know, not just ancient ones, but, like, also, like, Chaucer and Shakespeare or something. And I just in the – I was reading an interview with Derek Wax, who's one of the producers. And he just – by name, he mentioned, I think, Apollodorus and Aeschylus. Like, they're sort of – there's lots of things going on there. But it seems – they put up this, I think – Appearance, like they, I think, in interviews and and sort of public appearance, they talk about that they're sort of trying to draw from the full pot. But then that sort of jumped to me because I was thinking as I watched this episode about the Iphigenia at Aulis play, where this there's a very important difference between this the way things happen in this episode and the way things happen in that play, and that Achilles is very very actively involved in that story. Um, because he he basically finds out what's going on and that he's being used as like a prop and he gets incredibly upset about this whole thing, understandably so. Uh, Whereas in here, Achilles just kind of hangs out in his tent for most of the episode and he doesn't even seem, he's just, he's sort of either... Ignorant or apathetic to what's going on.
0: Yeah, and the, the, to be fair, the graphic novel does have him doing the thing that he does in the play, like he gets involved and he says, "I will protect you if you want me to." And then Iphigenia says, "No, no, no, it's okay. Like, I guess this is what has to happen." Mm-hmm. But I, I really do see a lot of the the same line in the way that the story unfolds in the Age of Bronze graphic novels, which sort of end before they even get to the Iliadic part, right? So they really only cover the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. But they're a convenient proxy because they summarize a lot of stuff and, and highlight it. Mm-hmm. I will say, so here's here's something that I wanted to to bring up in those first two episodes. The reintroduction of the gods, um, yeah. which is new really since late antiquity. Because we dumped mm-hmm. them with a hemorrhization and certainly with Dictus and Darius already by the, you know... Let's say at the latest by the fourth century AD, that was it. No more gods. They don't. They don't show up. I mean, they're mentioned, but um, maybe they're real. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're not present at all. They're
1: not present in the same way. Yeah, that they
0: exactly. Are um, and they are not even causal necessarily. You know, you have people like Dictus saying, "Well, there was a plague. People said Apollo caused it. I don't know. Yeah. could have been a lot <laughs> of things." So the reintroduction of the gods in this somewhat off-putting and confusing way. Where they say cryptic things, um, and you don't really know what they want or what they think mm-hmm. is happening, you know. And so Paris starts to choose, and Zeus is like, "Let him choose." What, what does that mean, you know? And yeah. later on, he sort of indicates that there's some sort of fate, but maybe not. But the appearance of Artemis in the um, in this particular scene at Aulis, I thought, was very effective. The priest is just doing a ritual and he's praying, and then all of a sudden there's he looks over and he looks shocked and there's a cut and there's this Mm -hmm. god. I mean, you can tell because of the the gods are all sort of dressed in fairly raggedy fashion, um, and Mm -hmm. also stare very intensely, and she's staring at him with a somewhat unreadable expression that seems to be either grief or anger Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something in that range. And they they do, I think, a quite a good job of having people show up, but having the gods show up in a way that is never quite clear whether they're visible to anybody except for one person or even maybe that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can see them, but they are also not there. Um, And they're doing something, but you don't know what it is that they're doing, right? So they're not exactly, they're not fighting exactly. They're not throwing things. They're not touching anybody exactly, but they're looking and talking. And I thought that that was an interesting choice. I I enjoyed seeing them try to work that back in, in a way that might seem less confusing and off putting to a modern audience, right? There was not the sort of comical Xena warrior princess, the gods are a bunch of Homeric buffoons, um, who just act like people all the time. And also not the Homeric, you know, the gods are also a bunch of incompetent people who act like people all the time, but not you know, puffs of wind in the distance or something that somebody said, ah, the voice of the gods. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> some natural phenomenon that you are led to believe could have been the gods or maybe not. Right. Uh, Brad Pitt and the the Thetis figure who like, mm-hmm. is she a goddess? She has a very shiny shell.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. She's aloof
0: and mystical. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I thought, I thought that that was good. And that it's those episodes where that really comes to the fore um, mm-hmm. Especially with the sort of first joining of battle,
2: yeah, where you have where the gods mm-hmm. calling
0: out, calling out blessings upon individual people um, on mm-hmm. both sides.
2: Yeah, I I really enjoyed the the battle with the goddesses. I thought that was a fun addition, and I, it worked for me as a use of the gods in this story. Because I remember just hating what was it like immortals, Colin, where they're just gold. Yeah. And they're like mm-hmm. super shiny and they move really fast in slow motion or something. So I like that they they kind of, they do look like normal people, but they're kind of odd or they're out of place or you can tell that they are different. I think it it works for me in this situation. And I know that like the gods sort of peter out, they don't really have as big a role later in the episodes. And I kind of wish that they sort of popped up more
1: (laughs) yeah it's like it's almost like this kind of i'm trying to word there's like a metaphor for it but it kind of like falls on it's like trying to do a a balancing act and i think it sort of falls on itself a little bit because like adam said like i think a lot of the gods are sort of like weird and off-putting because they say all these things that sound important and meaningful but they kind of don't make any sense partially because we, we don't have like the sort of like the olympic context of the whole thing like, we don't know what's going on behind their scenes. Part of it is also there's... Why does Zeus try to make out with Aphrodite almost? Like, what is up with yeah. that? It's, yeah, what? <laughs> there's, like, yeah, we we I mean, I think for budget reasons, we don't see Olympus. They only appear sort of on the mortal plane in more or less mortal guise. Um, like, I think if we had a little bit just more of, like, the the scene with Artemis, uh, or the scene where I think, like, Paris is looking at the beach and he see sort of Aphrodite walking, like... You know, almost in like a more surrealist sort of way, because like I think it goes just like a little too far in one direction, trying to sort of uh, uh, like ascribe sort of or like like talk about the gods' causality in all this. But then it also still kind of adheres to that kind of more or less euhemeristic historical historicization of events, mm-hmm. like in the two thousand and four version. And then the gods just sort of it, the gods just become this kind of huge question mark. That was like what was. I won't say anything because I don't remember exactly what they do in the later episodes, or if they do anything. Well, there's this. Uh, well, we'll save that for the time. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll, you can you can leave it for then. But there's this weird moment where Aphrodite intervenes very directly in a way that is not true. And I, I mean, the gods do that sometimes. They trick you. Athena tricks Hector um, mm-hmm. into standing to to fight Achilles, but it it is confusing, and and you're not really sure what they're up to, and you never you never learn what they're up to. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, maybe again, maybe this is the the point right? Yeah. But you don't learn because you can't know. And
1: yeah, not it's for not even us. really
0: clear in the Iliad what they're up to. They keep saying things about the will of Zeus yeah. and people make explanations after the fact to say, Oh, they were, you know, this had to be done to decrease the population of people on earth, right? That the Iliad was the Thanos moment of, uh, mm-hmm. Greek mythology, but, um, but you don't really know. We still don't quite agree.
2: Yeah. I think that's why I kind of like it. Um, that it's not trying to maybe over explain, I don't know. I, I would,
1: but I think it still kind of overexplains. I think that's maybe yeah. Like the... maybe they
2: didn't commit to the the surrealism versus the the full causality.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, they have a whole. There's a there's a whole conversation where they they sort of. It's I think Hera sort of talking about Zeus's sort of impartiality or mm-hmm. his, his sort of neutrality in the whole event. Yeah. And in a way that, like, 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 people over the Iliad or or whatever have like a little more context, but to a sort of I think just blanket viewer, that it just sort of seems like non, I don't Though it sort of seems a little nonsensical.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I will um say two things, very minor things, um, but things that I thought were interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of them is I cannot support this with evidence, but I have a very strong feeling that the first encounter with Agamemnon at the funeral of Atreus, I guess, on Crete, mm-hmm. where Menelaus goes and finds him. And Agamemnon has his head draped and he's sitting with his head resting on his his chin resting on his fist. That this is meant to be a visual echo of the mourning Agamemnon in the Pompeian fresco, the famous Pompeian fresco, which is about Iphigenia at Aulis. Right? Where Agamemnon mm-hmm. has turned away, his head is draped, and he's sitting with his chin on his fist. I love which that. Which would be cool, both because you know, there's a nice reference and because there is a sort of a foreshadowing implicit there, mm-hmm. it's such a esoteric, such an esoteric reference that I doubt that it was intended because who would it, get yeah. it except for like me and six other people <laughs> um, who both knew those things and were watching this, right. this ridiculous show. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was cool. And the other thing that I will say as an appreciation, which is a legitimate appreciation in that this is something that i think was done deliberately i can't argue for the the agamemnon sort of image mm-hmm. nobody in this movie ever yells hold the line <laughs> which i am super tired of as a trope i don't know if it comes from gladiator i don't know if it's a sword and sandal thing every goddamn movie about the past has to have somebody yelling hold the line vikings hold the line Anglo-Saxons <laughs> hold the line. Pompeii, that movie that you guys yep. reviewed, that yep. even had that even had a hold the line moment. It did. Wait, that's our intro. That's our intro no right point, there you just provided right? us. It was just there. <laughs> hold the line. So they did think, not Is say it like hold a the Henry line. the Fifth thing? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's not Shakespeare. It's it's a filmic convention about this is how people fought in the past. They used to yell hold the line a lot. Oh my god. They definitely yelled it in Gladiator. They definitely yelled it in Troy the movie all the time. Everybody is mm-hmm. always yelling hold the line. They didn't yet hold the line. Um, they also <laughs> clearly didn't have as big a budget for fight scenes uh, yeah. because they yeah. they did the thing where they had the set piece where the, the gods were running out in front of everybody, which was visually cool. Mm-hmm. And then they clearly didn't have like a giant army of extras. And so they had a couple of people start fighting and then they did the blood splatters on the camera lens and drips down. Yeah. 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 Things, which kind of ruined like, it for me. <laughs> to say like... Like 1970s style, this is a very bloody event.
1: Yeah. It almost looks like, I don't know if you you ever played uh, an old game, but there's the original Rome Total War game. The, like, opening credits was like that. It was like a red (laughs) mist, and you saw, like, shadows sort of running in the background. It's, you know, kind of, like, it disguises, because it looks cool, but it's also, like, fairly sort of cost-efficient and sort of uncomplicated. Yeah. But I think, like, in that scene, I think a hard cut might have gone a little bit more... Might have been a little bit more effective to just like the clash and then hard cut to the bodies. Yeah. Or the aftermath. Or something. Or whatever it is. Yeah. Um because then we, we finally I feel like this show this is when we get the introduction of Achilles. And this show I think just introduces and I think kind of handles Achilles very oddly. But we do get to see like a moment where he he throws the spear into into somebody's face which I don't remember. I couldn't, I was trying to think of the like, Is this one of Priam's sons? I'm not recognizing, but it's a very, that's a very, very Iliadic moment where he throws it and it comes out the back. It of goes his all mouth. the way through and hits the ground. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then the guy falls in that. I, I noticed that too. I thought that that was, mm-hmm. I appreciated that, that sort of more direct echo. Mm-hmm. I will say, so as material culture goes, this is a lot more accurate to the extent that these movies are ever accurate than the Troy movie. So yes. nobody is wandering around with a you 5th know, century red figure Athenian vase, giving it as a right? present to Agamemnon. Yeah. <laughs> there are beak-spouted jugs all over the place, which are Minoan and Cycladic uh, from the middle Minoan period. So earlier than any of this would have happened. But they're very visually recognizable, and that makes sense. I get that they wanted to have people riding around on horses because that's what people do in modern movies, and you always have cavalry. Mm-hmm. And I think you have cavalry charges in the Troy movie. You certainly have mm-hmm. cavalry charges in every Roman movie. You have cavalry charges in the story of the Trojan War as told in the Middle Ages and in late antiquity, because they're, mm-hmm. they're a cavalry yes. army, right? Yeah, to yeah. the point where you've forgotten what chariots are. And I talked about this with my students, but in, by the time you get to the romance of Troy, the, the Hector and Achilles echo is now Achilles and Troilus, and Troilus is dragged from the tail of a horse. Because what else uh, are you going to drag yeah. him from, right? You got a horse, you got nothing else to drag. Right. <laughs> so I wish that they had been a little bit more faithful in that respect. If they were going to do the work to make this more realistic otherwise, then don't have a bunch of people riding around on horses, which never happens in the Iliad. And we don't have iconographic information about it for the, the Bronze Age. Maybe they did it, but we, we don't see it. And the other mm-hmm. sort of minor thing that bugged me is when the Trojans are preparing for war, They are hammering away at weapons. Clang, 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 clang. They went to a lot of effort to make the swords bronze and, Mm. you know, orange. Mm -hmm. You don't hammer bronze out. That is ironsmithing. (laughs) Somebody is apprenticed to a blacksmith in the story, which you don't have because there's not any iron. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they are sharpening the dagger to slaughter the horse that they have decided to kill in the place of... Aetion, who has been left unburied at Thebe um, after being killed by Achilles, they're doing the scene, you know, in in the way that we are familiar with, where you were grinding a knife against a grindstone and showers of sparks are coming out to show you that it's being sharpened, Mm -hmm. bronze doesn't spark. (laughs) So that even when people have been paying attention and trying to be accurate, there are these sort of anachronisms that are the same as the ones that show up in the Iliad itself. Right, right mm-hmm. where your similes are talking about iron and now it's a lump of metal that's valuable just because it's a weird lump of a weird metal and now right. it's a plowshare and you're using it all the time. <laughs> um,
1: and this segment, bro- bro- go for it. No,
0: no, no I was just going to say, like, in the Tri movie, they were like, forget it. Like, we're not even going to yeah. try. We're just going to throw in yeah. everything that looks vaguely Greek. But here <laughs> they were trying, but they, like, why not go that last little bit, right? Why not go that mm-hmm. last mile,
1: yeah. make the
0: bronze not spark? make people say, why is that not sparking? And then they look it up and and discover the you gotta, going you're on. gonna have to have
1: that argument with the with the props master he's like like, oh, come on I like prepped all this stuff to get it to shoot sparks out and then, like, uh, but this, this segment also brought to us by brought to you by the man who informed me that I in fact could not make a toilet because I wouldn't be able to get the glaze right I wouldn't have the porcelain necessary and I would just end up with a very very sticky poop shoot um, so thanks Adam uh, which I, not, I, would, I so I'll, I'll pivot this could be our, our closing unless anyone has any final um, final know remarks they want to shoot out go for it all right but yeah so adam's like so say you are thrown back into the bronze age what knowledge (laughs) could you dr adam Rubinowitz, bring to give you a leg up ah
0: germ theory probably Mm. just hand washing right so when those guys Mm. all get battle wounds like you wash them and you wash your hands first (laughs) i would be the best doctor ever (laughs)
1: <laughs> Which, they have a minute where oh it's in the first scene where the the midwife she like she puts the blade over the fire mm-hmm. presumably to sterilize it whether that's a thing they might have done i have no idea well they um, they might have heated stuff to cauterize mm-hmm.
0: right so not sterilization yeah, but cauterization where you know that if you apply it it'll stop the bleeding right um, mm-hmm. if you don't have any other way to stop the bleeding so that that i can imagine i think mm-hmm. you i think you might get cauterization in Hippocratic discussions. I don't. I don't remember to be honest. Yeah. But just the idea of germ theory and that you know when mm-hmm. everybody gets the plague, maybe don't just keep touching them and then touching your face. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Yes. So important. Pro-
1: prop- proper. I was like proper body disposal, wastewater, Ooh, yeah. all that good stuff.
0: <laughs> I don't think I would have um, a lot of other. I, I I have done a couple of of. Courses in Austin with a, a place called Earth Natives that they do like flint napping courses occasionally. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it'd be interesting to know how to do that. But that would be a, a technology that was already outmoded by the Bronze Age, and yeah. plus, I'm not good at it, so I <laughs> would have very little to contribute there. And I can't metal smith and mine ore, and there are too many steps. So yeah, just hand washing—that's what I would bring back to the past.
1: I, just in the course of this, Eli, do you have a, do you have another one? No, or?
2: I keep thinking of. No, I'm still working on my next one.
1: Yeah, I was think this is a, this is a tough one because I think I, Colin, am not a very accomplished rider or, or horse person ever. But but stirrups is a thing I could definitely invent. There you go. Yeah. Yep. And if if we're talking Bronze Age and they're maybe not riding around on horses or they're, it's purely chariots or what is we don't know what's going on. Like you you know a, a single person a saddle. I think I could I could do a saddle with stirrups and bridle which might be useful, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know how I'd be able to monetize it, but. Well, I mean, uh, it's it's uh,
2: just for you. Like if you (laughs) needed to get somewhere
1: fast.
0: (laughs) The problem is that all of the inventions, the sort of the lowest hanging fruit that you could bring back from the present, like gunpowder or stirrups or (laughs) crossbows, right? That you (laughs) could actually get somebody to make and you could probably experiment until you had the right mixture of, you know, sulfur and and (laughs) potash and, and charcoal. They're all for killing people. Right, but yeah. so you can yeah. like
1: make the world more
0: efficient at killing people earlier. Yeah, I, I,
1: I don't have that like practical knowledge of like like in Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court, he like creates a steam engine, like which is a thing that I don't even know how to how, how quite to do. But also, again, probably requires like steel.
0: Well, and a or, purpose and a machining environment in which you could make something that could be driven by a steam engine. Right. Right, Because Archimedes makes a steam engine too. And it's just a curiosity with a thing that spins around and around. Like (laughs) it doesn't go anywhere. Right. If you don't have a use for Mm -hmm. it.
1: Yeah. If I were like the primitive technologies guy, I could iron smithing. We could get the jump on. Then you could get like an iron plow or something, but all righty. So yeah. Unless, do you have any other, uh, any closing thoughts we should, we should end on, or you want to get out there before, um, before we close up shop?
0: No, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited to see what the, what the students have to say about this, especially after they've seen the movie, right? Because yeah. again, this can't help but bounce off the movie as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Both by making deliberate choices to differ and by ending up doing some of the same stuff. Yep. yep. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam, for, for joining us. I had a I had a really great time. Yeah, this was awesome. Uh,
0: Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed it too. This was
1: great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as, as always to all of our guests, this is a standing invitation. So if you ever get the hankering for, to come back on the show or something jumps to you, your, our door is always open. Uh, in the meantime, so are, where can people find you uh, if they want get, to get more from the, the hot dishes of Dr. Adam Rabinowitz?
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm at the University of Texas. I'm easy to find on the website, or you can Google me. And if you want to know more about the field project that I am currently co-directing with a Romanian colleague, although it's the pandemic, right? So am I, kind of? <laughs> um, and which uh, Eli is intimately familiar with. You can look for the Histria Multiscalar Archaeological Project, H-I-S-T-R-I-A, and we have a couple of pieces up um, on the UT website. And I've got a blog post that relates to that on the not-even-past blog of the UT history department. And you Mm -hmm. could look up Planet Texas 2050, which is the grand challenge initiative under which this project is now unfolding.
1: And and we'll put all these links in, in the show description. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Adam. We'll just say one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us at movieswedig.com. Follow us at at digmovies and listen to us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and a host of other services. So thank you all. Bye. Bye. Eli, was there a quote you wanted to jump in with? I only wrote down silly quotes. <laughs> or Adam?
2: <laughs> I don't have any serious quotes either. No.
1: <laughs> so, sometimes we like to, um, we like start with like a like a quote that jumped out to us. The only one I wrote down was I'm, I'm a woman, I think. But that's just more of like a weird line reading than the actual quote. Because I was watching it with Tracy and she goes, "I am a woman, I, I think." think. We're like, we were like, what? And then she goes, "Because I think it's supposed to be I'm a woman." Pause. I, I think, think I feel the, like. Yeah. I, you know, do this, but, but I heard it as I am a woman, I think. <laughs> can you guys hear? My cat is like flipping out yep. over the other. <laughs> okay, I'm going to, give me one second and I'll say my thing. Buddy, <laughs> I shut this towards so you cat wouldn't bother. You <laughs> You're not back, come on. <sighs>